Nothing about the world is fixed. The world is basically continuously in flux and technology is the part of the world that changes most rapidly right now. Wasn't always the case, but right now technology is changing very, very quickly. The blockchain is a process. It's not a single technology where you look at it and you go, now I understand it. It's a technology where you look at it and then six months later you look at it again and it's a completely different thing. Hi everyone, my name is Wahidur Rahman, co-founder in Pasco, and welcome to a very special episode of the Innovation Civilization podcast. Today we'll talk about a topic that needs urgent, urgent attention and understanding if you're alive in the 21st century and listening to this right now. It's the entity that gave the single greatest investment return that any company in the world in history and seems to be creating an alternative financial system right under our noses. Yes, today we'll talk about cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin. Bitcoin as it stands gave the single greatest return in investment history probably turning from one cent to 30,000 US dollars. That's almost a 3 million X returns. Every day you see some government, some central bank or established institutional investors like BlackRock, JP Morgan announcing their entry into the crypto space one way or the other. Every time people seem to poo poo on the crypto space in every cycle, it just absorbs the criticisms, engineers, developers in those ecosystems keep working on the problems despite of the hype cycles and the crypto boom comes back even stronger. Our guest today is Vinay Gupta, who is one of the pioneers of the crypto blockchain space and with the one who led the launch of Ethereum, the second biggest cryptocurrency in the world, the one that seemingly has even bigger potential than Bitcoin. We talk about the fundamentals of what is money, why we need money, its history, problems with our current financial systems, definitions and benefits of cryptocurrencies. And finally, if you're a policymaker in emerging markets or an individual living there or someone who's getting fresh into the crypto space, no matter where you live, then how should you think about crypto? We're also joined by our in-house blockchain expert and Pasco partner, Arthur Safarian. Our story starts with our guest being one of the very early adopters in the world of cryptocurrencies. Here's Vinay when I ask him about the introduction of himself into the space. So my first year being paid 100% in digital cash was 1999. I was part of an ecosystem called eGold, which was literally gold bullion stored in a vault. And you could trade other people direct weight of the gold that was in your control. So you could say to somebody, I'll pay you three grams gold to do this thing for me. And I persuaded the company I was working for that, you know, cryptocurrency or digital currency, as we called it at the time, was the wave of the future. And so I spent a year being paid in this stuff in literally 1999. Might be one of the first people in the world to have all of their income go through one of these systems. So then, you know, years passed and one thing led to another and I spent a lot of time doing sort of defense contracting and stuff after 9-11. Lots of time in energy policy, lots of time in defense, security and resilience. And then I started hearing people talking about smart contracts and I'm like, smart contracts? I haven't heard people talking about smart contracts since 2003. What is going on here? That turns into me taking a job with the Ethereum Foundation. And at the Ethereum Foundation, I run the launch processes for Ethereum. So I'm the release coordinator. Join in 2014, launch the platform 2015, stick around at the foundation for another year or so, basically just kind of helping get the thing properly launched and teaching people what it does. And then a couple of years after that, I start Materium, which is here to solve one of the big kind of fundamental unsolved problems in the whole crypto space which is how do I buy a house with Bitcoin? That's fascinating. And just pulling on that thread, Vinay, 
what is a smart contract if you want to kind of elucidate the listeners? So the old joke about smart contracts is they're neither smart nor contracts. You know, there are other people that have names for them like conditional payments and there's a bunch of, you know, sort of malarkey. But the bottom line is that a smart contract is just a tiny little piece of software that lives on the blockchain. Um, so rather than giving an instruction to pay somebody immediately, you give an instruction to put the money under the control of this little piece of software and the little piece of software is a couple of hundred lines long at most. And it's basically a series of if-then statements about what to do with the money. You know, multiply number one by number two. If variable three is more than variable four, pay to Bob, otherwise pay to Harry. Boom, there's mm -hmm. your smart contract. So it's not a lot of sophistication. The smart contracts are nothing like writing like big software in real systems. They're very, very small things. Mm -hmm. And they're basically just control logic for money. The origins and the use of money go back as far as human societies have existed. However, as one might expect, the exact iterations and forms of money was different and changed over time. And because it changed so many times, there's absolutely no guarantee that it won't change again. Prehistoric people knew that they need to have some kind of mechanism to store their wealth, but most importantly, needed to be able to exchange wealth and value as well. Not every person had everything, so exchanging was important and valuable to them. Prehistoric people used to rely on bartering systems around 6000 BC, which was taken up by the Mesopotamian tribes around the area and was adopted by the Phoenicians as well. Bartering was the exchange of a thing for another thing. So you might have something valuable that I want and I have something that you want, which is of seemingly equal value, then a trade can happen. In the book of politics in 350 BC, the Greek philosopher Aristotle contemplated the nature of money. He considered that every object has two uses. Number one, the original purpose for which it was designed. And number two, as an item to sell and barter with other people. Prehistoric people also used to rely on clamshells as currencies, like literally clamshells from the seas. And they used to have tattoos on them, which are clam-shaped to understand the shape, type, and size of the clam, which would determine the value of the clam as currency, basically. It has long been assumed that metals were available were also favored over bartering systems and bartering commodities such as cattle, cowrie, shells, or salt, because metals are durable, portable, and easily divisible. The use of gold as money has been traced back to 4000 BC when Egyptians started using it using gold bars and Mesopotamia later with silver bars. Then we moved on to the age of coins and the first manufactured actual coins seem to have appeared in India and China and the cities around the Aegean Sea in 7000 BC and coins have been used since then for a long time. Paper money was introduced in Song Dynasty China during the 11th century as merchants and wholesalers wanted to avoid the heavy bulk of copper coinage in large commercial transactions. In the medieval Islamic empires, a vigorous moderate economy was also created during the 7 to 12 centuries during the time as well. On the basis of expanding levels of circulation of a stable high-value currency like the dinar, innovations introduced by Muslim economists during that time and traders included the earliest use of credit, checks, 
promissory notes, savings account, transactional accounts, loaning, trusts, exchange rates, the transfer credit and debt, and banking institutions for loans and deposits. On the European side, the first European banknotes were issued by the Stockholm's Banco, which was in 1661, and credit and debit cards came around in 20th century, first experimented in Fresno, California with Visa and MasterCard as we know today. If there's anything that can be learned from the history of money, it's basically that money is consensus belief. It is determined by social consensus, very unique to humans, and the ability of humans to do complex social organizations is very emblematic of us. If we were to agree upon clamshells as currency tomorrow and everyone agrees they would pay and exchange things with clamshells, then clamshells would be our currency. My take on this is that money is almost entirely about taxation. Money is whatever the government requires you to give it in return for the goods and services that the government provides you. And obviously that means that money is a very, very, very tiny fraction of a much wider category that we might call transferable assets. And I'm much more interested in transferable assets than money. You know, there's been an endless amount of wrangling about whether or not Bitcoin is money or whether Monero is money or whether Zcash is money or, you know, whether USDT is money. All of that stuff, you know, you've got to remember that money is only a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of the world's assets. Compared to, for example, the pool of real estate, money is probably, I don't know, I mean, do you have any idea like what the ratio is to the amount of cash in circulation relative to the amount of value tied up in real estate? I'm guessing it's like a thousand to one. So, you know, the, the endless debate about, you know, is Bitcoin money? I think that was largely wasted time. It doesn't matter whether or not it's money, right? It matters whether or not people want to use it for paying people. And, you know, people will say, well, you know, does that not mean it's money? And I'm like, it means you don't have to care whether it's money. Yeah, that makes sense. And in terms of money, really, so there are a couple of characteristics, right? So you've got the storage of wealth thing, exchange mm -hmm. of value, and mutually agreed upon, like, say, a consensus mechanism, right? So money is a consensus mechanism. So does kind of crypto and Bitcoin fulfill all those kind of criteria? Our model of money is not based on some kind of great laws of money that were defined in the abstract. All of these definitions of money are definitions of money that people have made up post facto to explain behaviors that they've seen in the wild. When the behavior in the wild changes, the definition of money changes. You know, the, the definition is bottom up, top top down. How do you mean by the behavior? Like, what does that mean exactly? Well, so there is a point where people begin to issue paper money right? They begin to issue promissory notes for gold that's held in somebody else's vault. So at the time, you've got one group of people that say that gold is money and they require physical delivery of the gold. And you've got another group of people who are like, I'm perfectly happy with a promissory note that tells me the gold is in the vault and I could go and pick up the gold anytime I want. I don't actually need to go pick up the gold anymore. This is great. This is super convenient. So mm -hmm. there has been a debate between those two groups of people at the time about whether or not somebody would accept payment in a promissory note rather than requiring a actual physical gold. We're in a transition point like that right now, right? There are people that will accept cryptocurrency and there are people that won't. If 90% of the population accepts cryptocurrency, nobody cares whether it met the definition of money that we used in the 1990s. Yeah, and before the promissory notes, you had the clamshells kind of generation as well, right? So way back into history. So the ways that yeah. people have exchanged value, you know, it changes all the time. It goes back into all kinds of weird history. There's no doubt at all that that history is important. But the fundamental lesson from that history is not here are the five things that define whether something is money or not. The fundamental lesson from that history is it keeps changing.
I'd actually like to ask, Vinay, do you think there's also an interesting thread to pick here in, in terms of digitization and how digitizing money and that digitization fire, I know you mentioned this in some of your other talks, when the digitization fire sort of catches on the way it did in dating, we went fully from physical to digital and it moves very fast. When it catches on in commerce, we go from physical to digital very fast. And is that something that's currently happening with money as well? Is that why Bitcoin you know, went to a, a trillion dollar market cap in a span of uh, 10 years? Yeah, this to me is much more where the leverage is on this question, right? If we think of the most general case, right? Take something like Ethereum. Ethereum has within it a currency or a thing which we call the currency. And, you know, somebody might say, well, Ethereum is digital money. But really, Ethereum is this enormously complicated piece of software that synchronizes tens of thousands of computers. And at that point, it produces money as a relatively minor side effect of its existence. It's a general purpose computation platform that has some very, very, very unusual characteristics relative to, say, a laptop. It's a computer in a sense but it's nothing like that computer and then it happens to produce money as a side effect and that model where you know like i used to say to people look cryptocurrency is the equivalent of saying horseless carriage the thing which is happening here looks a little bit like a currency if all you've ever seen before is currencies but it's actually a completely new class of things and we don't really have good names for it or ways of describing it we don't really understand how to put it into language properly we say the term cryptocurrency because we don't understand what we're really looking at yet and i think that is the right way of looking at this question in actual practice these things are nothing like money they produce a side effect which is like money but the underlying architecture is for a whole different thing that's the first thing that i wanted to say about this like it's it's not a question of whether it's money it's gone beyond what money is and it happens to produce an effect which is like money right thing one all right and then thing two you know this question about digitization arthur is exactly right right when you get a wave of digitization like music went from being zero digital to all digital in what 30 years 25 you know it went literally from napster through to spotify and at that point you know the de facto standard way of doing music for basically all intents and purposes, is you stream it. That's just what we do now. So the idea that money, which is currently on this you know, terrible paper system or credit cards, which are now 50, 60 years old, the idea that that's the terminal form of money makes no sense at all. Like that's not the end of the road here. That's the beginning of the journey. That makes sense. And you mentioned that it's a terrible paper system. I'm wondering why do you think it's so terrible? So paper cash is just extremely archaic. I mean, what is the first paper cash issued? It's probably thousands of years ago in China. Practically everything, when you ask when it was first done, it's thousands of years ago in China. Everybody likes to talk about, you know, the Gutenberg press and the invention of movable type. They'd been doing it for a long time before that in China, and everybody acts as if it was invented by, you know, some German dude. Think of the problems with paper money. You can't store a lot of it yourself. You need a bank to store it for you. It's expensive to produce. It wears out. It's easy to steal. And every single one of those things is a fundamental problem that you can't fix. You know, you can't make a small change to the way that paper money operates and get paper money that doesn't have those problems. The fact that paper money is that way is fundamental to the nature of paper money. There is no easy fix for paper money. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what is the advantage that paper money gives you? It gives you anonymous payments. It's easier to carry around than gold. It's easier for governments to produce a lot of it if they want to produce a lot of it than gold. You just pay something to print it for you. Is that a good thing? It's a good thing if you're a government. 
Is it a good thing for everybody else? Probably not. It's also worth mentioning that paper money mm -hmm. is great for illegal activity, right? And this is uh, what Bitcoin gets a lot of hate for. But actually, I mean, US dollars are a lot better, right, than even digital currency. I mean, you know, what I say to people when they bring this up is like, look, the reason that, for example, you know, the banks will close your bank account because of digital currency is not because the banks are fundamentally interested in eradicating money laundering. What they're fundamentally interested in is keeping their mm. monopoly on money laundering. <laughs> you know, exactly. I mean, remember, sense, yeah. you know, didn't HSBC get busted for laundering like a trillion dollars of drug money or something <laughs> like that? Mm -hmm. You know, I seem to wasn't the fine like a hundred and thirty billion dollars or something insane. The sums of money that these guys were laundering are absolutely staggering. And then everybody acts as if it's some great surprise that they get caught and somebody says stop. You know, are we supposed to pretend that nobody knew until they were told to stop? Does that make any sense? Like, of course, people knew they were doing this. You know, it's just that they were considered to be the right people to be doing it for a while, and so they were allowed to do it. In 2008, a pseudonymous identity called Satoshi Nakamoto created a white paper outlining what Bitcoin is. It's essentially a decentralized peer-to-peer -peer lending, which does not rely on third parties to verify the transaction. What is just needed is an electronic payment system based on cryptographic proof instead of trust, allowing any two willing parties to basically transact directly with each other without the need for a middleman like a central bank, for example, or a government. Crypto means hidden, graphy means to write, cryptography basically are writings which are hidden by math. In normal financial systems, the central bank sanctifies or verifies the banknotes and the transaction itself. Bitcoin solves these problems interestingly. Basically, it makes the ledger and the all the transaction history available to everybody so everybody would have a copy of the digital ledger in encrypted format so to decrypt it basically to understand what it means and the transaction means you basically need what they call a private key you have miners who are verifying and keeping the entire ledger intact which means that they make sure that the ledgers tie up with each other and the ledger is kept in a perfect condition where the transaction history actually ties up with each other. So they need to provide computational power for this to essentially work. And they're incentivized by Bitcoin. And there's only a finite amount of Bitcoin in the world. It's about 20 million Bitcoins in the whole world. And a block time is where you make a statement and you don't have to take it back really crypto takes money to computers natively and does not require any third parties so bitcoin isn't really a coin it's a virtual ledger maintained by tons of machines across the world first of all we don't know who satoshi was satoshi identified themselves by you know things like cryptographic keys there was never a physical person associated with the satoshi brand so was it an individual was it a collective we don't know you know nationality age makeup of the group we don't know we just don't really know anything because satoshi was pretty good at computer security and managed not to tell the world their identity and this is one of the great mysteries of bitcoin of like you know, so it just fell from the sky. Well, you know, some people have loaded some software to the internet and some other people ran the software. And between some people writing the software and some people running the software, we wound up with the platform and the platform had money in it. You know, it's a pretty weird story, but that's how we got here. 
Yeah, and can you tell us basically on what is crypto exactly? And how do you define crypto here? Cryptocurrencies, I mean, yeah. Again, is it a currency? Right. We say cryptocurrency mm -hmm. because it has currency-like characteristics, but I would suggest that looking at Ethereum as a currency is a big mistake. You know, Ethereum is a system that has a currency, but it is not a currency. It's some kind of generalized computing platform with a bunch of really unusual attributes, but it's way more than a currency. And you mentioned basically that it's basically a byproduct or like a subset, the fact that it's a currency, Ethereum. Would you say the same thing about some like Bitcoin as well? Bitcoin is the great grandfather of all these things, right? You know, mm. Bitcoin comes along and Bitcoin's objective is to produce a payment system. And note that I say payment system rather than currency. So mm -hmm. the critical thing about Bitcoin is that you can use it to pay people for goods and services. So the first thing is you've got to start with this question of, well, was it an attempt to create money? Was it an attempt to stand up a currency first? Or was it an attempt to stand up a payment rail that happened to have a currency associated with it? This gets very tightly into questions of monetary policy. Once you've decided that you've got a payment rail, the question is, well, what can I pay you in? Bitcoin's answer is there is a native instrument that is associated with this payment rail and that pay instrument is called Bitcoin. What is a Bitcoin worth? Well, whatever you want to pay for it. And what that creates is this very, very, very detached from the world, isolated kind of sub-universe where the people that accept that Bitcoin is money choose to accept it and then they'll accept it at whatever value they accept it at. And everybody else stares at them and wonders what the heck it is they're doing. Why are you giving away your money for this weird digital garbage? So whether or not Bitcoin is money depends on whether or not you're willing to accept it for something. You're making the decision, not anybody else. Whereas when the state issues money, the state has this concept of legal tender, which is we've told you it's money and you're legally obligated to take it. And if you don't, you're breaking the law. And this slightly goes with the concept of kind of libertarianism, small governments and decentralization. Would you kind of agree with that general trend? Well, I mean, all of those, again, are descriptions that were added later on. All of that stuff is kind of post-facto. It's, it's language which is used to describe a phenomena rather than being language which in some way created the phenomena. You see what I'm saying? This is a mm -hmm. subtle philosophical distinction, but it's really important. Sometimes we use language to tell people what we're going to do and then we do it. And then you can arguably say that the thing that was done was defined by the language. In other situations, what happens is that somebody does something and then other people come along and apply language to that something and try and describe what it was that just happened. Almost all the debates about Bitcoin or what is it and how how does it work and all the rest of this stuff and is it money and all the rest almost all of that is people coming along afterwards and trying to give a kind of anthropological description of what it is that just happened and at that point i'm not sure the anthropological descriptions are all that important is it money you could pay people with it who decides if it's money the person accepting it the government has not told you that it's money and you're not legally required to treat it as money in most places but Nonetheless, people choose to. And at that point, you can say, well, it's money, but people themselves get to decide whether they're going to accept it. Vinay, I think this would be an interesting point to double click on, because I know you've spent a lot of time, especially in the early Ethereum days, on actually mm -hmm. trying to basically put together a language that would describe this innovation. The stuff that we're seeing today, you know, you were trying to figure out how to explain it five years ago yeah. because they were things that we had never encountered, right? There's a notion of the internet computer, but then we have things like DeFi. What does that mean? NFTs. <laughs> what is that? Ultimately, you arrived to sort of explaining Ethereum and blockchain through this speed of light versus mm -hmm. uh, high frequency trading. Maybe you could dig into that a little bit. Sure. Let's take a look at this question of whether it's money. I think this will give us the correct philosophical lens for 
for looking at the rest of these questions. The critical thing about something like Bitcoin is not whether or not it's money. The critical thing about Bitcoin is who gets to decide whether it's money and what are the consequences associated with that decision. So in the case of fiat currency, the state tells you this is money and you have to accept the state's decision on that because it's legal tender and that means you are legally obligated to treat it as money. That's the default state for money. Um, Bitcoin comes along and Bitcoin makes a proposition, which is, well, this is a way of paying people. And if they will accept payment using this method of doing payments, then at that point, we will regard that to be money. You say, hey, I will pay you in Bitcoin. I say, okay, sure. You say, you give me your address, which indicates that you've got an account in the system, you've got a key, you've got key management, all the rest of that stuff. You're ready to take the payment. Payment is made. The critical thing is who makes the decision about accepting the stuff? And the answer is the person accepting the payment decides that it's money. Moving the locus of control for who decides whether something is money from the government to the individual is the reason that people talk about Bitcoin as a libertarian thing. What makes it libertarian is only that you get to decide whether the stuff is money or not for your purposes. And you could change your mind the next day. I will take Bitcoin from Bob, but I won't take Bitcoin from Harry. Why? Because I feel like it. Yeah, I understand the Bitcoin is the same, but I just don't feel like taking his payment in Bitcoin. I'm going to take it in cash. Thank you. That shifting of who makes the decision about whether it's money or not, that's a much more important thing than concepts like decentralization or libertarianism or crypto anarchism or any of the rest of these things. The most important part of this is about who makes the decision that they're going to accept the payment. Right. As opposed to previously where it would be top down government decision that this is the money that we're working with. And for example, you can use pounds for transactions, but you cannot use yen or rubles like in the UK, for example, right? That's right. That's right. And it used to be that this wasn't even a question, right? So back in the day, payments were made in gold and silver, nothing else counted. You know, it was an innovation when governments began to bring in pieces of paper and tell you that these things were the same as money. That was a radical change to the existing state of affairs. And, you know, mm -hmm. the thing about gold was that gold and silver were very international. Somebody says, I'm going to pay you in gold and they come along with Spanish doubloons. It's probably good enough for me. And then you get the process of the governments coming in and saying like, no, 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 the only gold coins that you're allowed to use are our gold coins. And this is where you begin to get this notion that currency has a national boundary associated with it. That's a relatively recent innovation. Back in the day, gold was gold and silver was silver. And if it had the wrong king's head on it, that didn't mean you weren't going to take it. And just on that, though, uh, just for understanding from my perspective as well, why do you think governments actually came in and said that this is money versus you know rely on gold? Like, What is the central reason and what has changed since then, basically? Well, so this goes back to the 1970s, right? When governments said, for example, one pound UK money, one pound is meant to refer to one pound of silver. So, you know, just over 500 grams of silver is supposed to come to you in exchange for one pound. It used to be that what it said was that this note is redeemable for one pound of silver. Now it's just redeemable for one pound. Well, one pound of what? No, no, you don't understand one pound. So we went from a system where there is an actual underlying physical thing which is being dealt with to a system in which there is no fundamental underlying. As a result, we've wound up in a position where the governments have the ability to continue to issue as much money as they like because there's no longer the need for them to have one pound of silver sitting in a vault to be able to issue a one pound note. And America went through this process in the early 70s. They went off what was called the gold standard where the dollar was redeemable for a fixed amount of gold and they went into a 
position where the dollar is not redeemable for anything. And then the governments have printed money and printed money and printed money and printed money. So the actual purchasing power of a dollar has gone down and down and down and down and down over time. And this, I guess, ties with the current state of a lot of the, I guess, crypto people looking at what's happening in the US with these new Biden's stimulus bills saying, okay, the basically the denominator that we switched from gold standard in 1973, uh, right, mm. where it was $1 is X amount of gold, and it became $1 is now $1. Today, in a lot of crypto people's minds, that's $1 is X amount of Bitcoin, because the mm-hmm. dollar denominator is no longer relevant. Absolutely. And, you know, that is a big, big, big change. But it's only a big change recently. What we're going back to is a situation where governments don't control what people can pay each other with. And that is not some weird new state of affairs being created by cryptography. That's the natural state of affairs, because that's how it ran from the beginning of time when gold was gold and silver was silver. And that's just how the world worked. It's not a strange thing which is happening here. It's an old thing. But it's by no means some kind of weird innovation. This is just how the world always was. And then there was a brief period when it was different. Vinesh, so if we're looking at this sort of like a radical change that's happening, I guess, in the monetary systems, but also beyond that in the actual structure of the internet from like web two to web three, where we now have these like uh, payments rails, we have these internet computers and smart contracts and so on and so forth. Where are we in that timeline? So if we compare this to the sort of the development of the internet in, you know, through like 80s, 90s, where would you say we are? So I used to say that we were in the late 80s. And the reason I said that was because we hadn't really invented the hyperlink, right? We had smart contracts, but we had basically no instances in which the smart contracts were interconnecting to each other to produce whole systems which did something that an individual smart contract couldn't do. It was very, very early days. The whole DeFi ecosystem now is chained smart contracts. You know, smart contract one defines a loan, smart contract two defines some kind of splitting of money, smart contract three, you know, lends the split money to somebody else and da 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 And at the end of that process, you wind up with people running fairly sophisticated financial operations that span multiple organizations that are smoothly interconnected by virtue of the fact that they're all using smart contracts. And those smart contracts are architected to talk to each other. So I would say that we are now in the very early 90s. 1990s, right? I think that this is basically, say, 93, 94, maybe. You know, you've gotten to the point where there are hyperlinks, where things are connected. And the reason that is important is we're now in a position where the whole is more than the sum of its parts. There is genuine synergy between companies in the DeFi space. If I produce a new thing in the DeFi space, somebody else can plug their stuff into it and then somebody else can plug that hybrid into their thing. You know, suddenly the whole was worth more than the sum of its parts. That had not previously been the case because when it's just a single smart contract sitting there isolated, most of the time you could essentially do that with a website. You could have an Amazon server, you could plug into the Amazon server and you would get more or less the same effect. Once you've got 50 or 100 or 200 or 500 DeFi systems, all of which are smart contracts, which can be interconnected like Lego blocks. Now you're in a completely different domain. The whole is worth way more than the sum of its parts. And at that point, we're in a position which is analogous to where we were with hyperlinks in the early 1990s, because once you had hyperlinks, a hyperlinked document made the information in it worth fundamentally more than a non-hyperlinked document. Hyperlinks generated wealth. They made information worth more than it had been worth before. 
Okay, that's super interesting. And what do you think we should expect, you know, beyond just, I guess, uh, broad terms or global adoption or something along those lines? What are some of the big pieces of innovation that are still missing, but once they happen, we'll see a kind of a, a step change in the usability and in the various use cases of the blockchain tech? Right now, if nothing changes, and we just continue to see increasing acceleration and adoption, I would expect 5 or 10% of Americans to have crypto wallets, and I mean hardware wallets like ledgers, or equivalent security operations on their phones because they're using things like the secure element in their phones. I would expect 5 or 10% of Americans to have that level of security for their holdings within, let's say, two years. I think crypto is at the critical inflection point of America going from being some kind of weird minority interest to being a real thing, um, not just in the minds of Wall Street and the hedge funds and the ETFs and all the rest of this stuff, but in the minds of ordinary people. I have obviously not being able to spend much time in America given that we've had COVID and all the rest of this stuff. But, you know, the vibe that I get from the internet and the people that I'm talking to on the ground in the States is that the general public acceptance of crypto as being an actual thing is like, even if you live in weird small town America in the back end of someplace like Idaho or Iowa or Kentucky, there are a bunch of people in your town that are using crypto now. And if you want to know how to do it, you know, you go around and you ask, you know, Bob's brother who plays in a funk band, hey, you got a crypto wallet, right? How does that work? And once you're in a position where most people can ask around and somebody will sit them down and show them how it works, you're at the point where you get massive viral adoption. Because at that point, if I want to say, hey, I want to pay you in cryptocurrency to do this piece of web design work for me, you could just be like, I don't know how to take cryptocurrency, but you know, I'll ask my brother's mate, Dave, and Dave will sit me down and show me how to do it. And I think we're at that point where, you know, if there's another three to six months of crypto bull run, even if Bitcoin just stays around 50k for another six months, I think by the end of that, we will be over the critical cultural hump where it's basically like as normal to have a crypto hardware wallet as it is to have a cell phone. And I think it's worth mentioning for our listeners that there's only about 5 million MetaMask wallets currently live globally. So what you're saying, Vinay, is basically like a 10x growth from where we are roughly right now within the next year or two uh, in terms of adoption. In terms of adoption. Because the curve when something goes from, think of the history of cell phones. Initially, it's $6 a minute to use a cell phone, and the cell phone is the size of a brick. It's basically very closely related to the car phone, and pretty much the only people that are willing to pay that $6 a minute are people like movie producers or finance people. The cell phone continues to exist in that form for years, before you begin to get phones that are small enough and cheap enough that people are sort of expected to have one. Did you ever live in a house that just had a wired phone that had no cell phones? Yeah, I definitely did, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So do you remember the point in your life where it was just expected that all of your friends would have a cell phone and if they didn't, there was a problem? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think within two years, that's where cryptocurrency wallets will be. I keep stressing the hardware wallet angle on this because if it's going through something that looks like a crypto exchange, to all intents and purposes, you're just using a bank. 
And as a result, these things will be regulated by bank, like banks. It doesn't matter if your bank happens to be using Bitcoin. What will happen is that the exchanges will get forcibly merged into the banking system. They'll have the same kind of regulations. They'll have the same kind of pressures. And they'll wind up with the same kind of abusive policies and the same kind of nonsense. And at that point, there will be no liberating emancipatory potential in the things like Bitcoin. It will just become another kind of money. And you will access it the way you access your existing money, which is you'll go through a bank to get there at this point we don't actually have any progress see what i'm saying yeah and on that note when you say just for our listeners when you say exchanges you mean like coin list or like a coinbase is that correct yeah you know sort of kraken you know binance all the rest of these kind of things right so mm-hmm. the bank-like nature of these things is that to get to your money you have to get the permission of the exchange and you don't have direct control of your money so at that point remember what i said about you know whether something is legal tender or not depends on whether you make the decision to accept it if you're going through an exchange your ability to decide whether something is legal tender or not, or not legal tender, but whether you're willing to be, accept payment in it. You're no longer the sole person that decides whether you're willing to accept a payment in that currency. The person that decides is the person who's operating the exchange. So mm-hmm. they make yeah. the first decision, am I going to list this or not? If their answer is, I'm not going to list it, you don't get to get paid in that. And now we have a problem. I want to get completely clear on this principle. The fact that you're taking the payment and you get to decide whether or not you're going to accept the thing that you're being offered, that is the critical emancipatory fact of the blockchain. You decide whether you will accept it, and there is no intermediary. As soon as that goes away and you have an exchange in the middle, it doesn't matter that it's Bitcoin or Ethereum or, you know, Elbow Coin or whatever the heck it happens to be. If somebody else makes the decision about whether or not you've got the potential to accept it or not, you're not using the blockchain, you're just using a bank. And then that bank might be using the blockchain, but you are no longer using the blockchain. The bank is using the blockchain. See the distinction? Yeah. So this is the classic crypto saying, not your keys, not your coins. Right. But they've put the emphasis in the wrong place. Because when they say not your keys, not your coins, what they're really concerned with is the idea that the bank has the ability to seize your money and not let you have it. And sure enough, that's mightily inconvenient. But the much more fundamental thing that's happening in this instance is that the bank is deciding whether or not it's money for you. We don't list this coin because we consider this coin to be a scam coin. They've made the decision about whether this thing is money or not. And the revolutionary part of crypto is it gave individuals the ability to decide whether something is money or not, which reclaimed a fundamental power from the state. That was the fundamental insight. Once you've got exchanges that stand between people and the decision about whether something is their money or not, what you've done is you've taken the sovereignty that crypto gave people to make the decision about whether something was money, and you've given that sovereignty to these bank-like institutions. The bank-like institutions are corporations with licenses, and that puts them directly under the control of the state, at which point you're back in a position where the state is deciding whether or not something is money or not. And this primal decision about whether or not I will accept something in payment for goods and services, once that primal decision slips back out of our control and into the hands of the exchanges and thereby the state, it doesn't matter whether it's Bitcoin or Ethereum or USDT or straight dollars, you still have the same fundamental entrenched power structure making the decisions about what is or is not money so this is the critical thing it's about your choice about what you'll accept that makes it really fundamentally a liberating technology as soon as your ability to decide whether or not you'll accept something for payment goes away it's no longer a liberating technology it's just banking and hardware wallets are important infrastructurally for that 
distinction, basically. Hardware wallets are the thing which has come out of crypto. So this is essentially you saying crypto is not here to make you rich, it's here to make you free. Crypto is here to do different things for different people. The only crypto use case that I fundamentally approve of, the thing to me which is like, oh yeah, this is working, we're really getting somewhere. The only one is the fact that the Nigerians are paying the Chinese for physical goods in Bitcoin as a way of dealing with the foreign exchange restrictions in Nigeria. Is that something that actually happened? Uh, that sorry. is that right here, right now. It's hard to estimate the volumes, but the Chinese are accepting Bitcoin from the Nigerians because, you know, they just can't get paid in dollars right now. And that's the real world, right? So it's almost like an alternative financial system being created. Well, who gets to decide who's going to accept what payment for the goods and services? The Chinese have decided that they are willing to accept Bitcoin from the Nigerians for goods. And the Chinese that make that decision are not the Chinese government or the Chinese banking establishment, it's individual Chinese vendors. Something really new is happening there. That is not yesterday's system. That's tomorrow's system. For the last 60 years or so, people have tried to work on currency that's native to the internet. The internet is unlike any medium ever, so having currency that's native to the internet and utilizes the unique nature of the internet is very important. So you've got Bitgold, Zcash, and others which were precursors to Bitcoin. So Bitcoin was not really an accident, it was an eventual coalescing point of those efforts really. Paul Graham, a Silicon Valley venture capitalist and founder of Y Combinator announced in 2008 the insurmountable challenges of accepting online payment, which caused the Stripe brothers to work on the problem and create a company called Stripe, which formed the financial infrastructure of payment system used today for businesses on e-commerce. On that note, being native to the internet means crypto has some unique advantages. So this is something we covered with Vinay on what are the unique benefits of crypto and why did it become so famous and popular over such a short period of time. If the governments were sane, healthy institutions that everybody believed in, nobody would be willing to risk their hard-earned dollars on some weird speculative coin thing produced by an anonymous person on the internet that they're never going to meet. Mm-hmm. That is the last thing you would do if you had any faith in your government. The thing which is driving the adoption of crypto is that the governments are run so badly, you think, you know, could they really be any worse than the Federal Reserve? Let's give it a try. <laughs> and do you think the current, uh, let's say, institutional adoption is also tied to that same thesis or it's something else now? If the American government hiccups, what's Take it real simply, right? A lot of the money which is going into crypto is being put into crypto by organizations which will just make a buck and they don't care how it works. Somebody told me a phrase this morning where somebody said that, you know, one of the best traders they knew said they had no interest in Bitcoin beyond its price movement in the next 10 minutes. A lot of the institutions which are going into Bitcoin right now have absolutely no interest in its political ramifications or its reason for existence or any of that. They just don't care. It's a commodity they can trade and they can make money on the volatility because they're good at making money on volatility. All of those folks, you know, they're piling in and sure enough, it will make the number go up and they're all very happy about that. And so are the existing holders. But if the American government winds up triggering hyperinflation in America, you know, you've seen Mr. Robot, right? How long would it take American mm. corporations to use a blockchain to stand up an intercorporation payment currency, which would allow them to transact without using the dollar, which would be at that point be in some kind of spiraling freefall? Which is, by the way, essentially Facebook's DM that's launching, I believe, in July this year. That gives you a you know strict sense of when the dollar is going to collapse, right? <laughs> 
<laughs> and I mean, this sounds like a joke, right? But if you had the world's top couple of thousand companies, you know, the Fortune 2000 or whatever it would be, all willing to accept a currency that was not a fiat currency for trade with each other. Remember what I said about in crypto, the critical thing is who makes the decision about what you will accept as payment. So if they all decide that they're going to accept a cryptocurrency issued by them and their mates as payment, you could very easily wind up in a situation where these corporations were dramatically detached from nation state power because they're doing their own banking. They're neither onshore nor offshore. The governments would lose a lot of access in terms of understanding their financial affairs because they would no longer have the ability to go and look at them because that's, you know, you're, you're trading in our currency so we can see your books. Dramatic transformation could occur. And why do you think the US government would basically sit on its laurels and let that happen? This sounds to me like a cartel, which is kind of decentralized from government. The US government doesn't exactly exist as a centralized entity. You have a thing in Washington, D.C., which calls itself the government, which makes the law. But when it comes to implementing the law, you know, you get out to some place like rural Texas, and it's not real clear that the stuff that's happening in D.C. turns into anything. So is that the federal versus kind of state and local government? All of that stuff, right? So, but it's not just federal and state government, it's power structures which aren't even officially part of the government. You know, it's mm -hmm. mega churches, it's oil fields. You know, if you're the company that owns and runs an oil field, all the towns that exist to service that oil field, you are effectively the state. You get, you get to hire and fire people based on their behavior outside of work. So if somebody picks a fight with one of your senior executives in a parking lot over a gas pump, you know, like you're going to fire that person and that is extrajudicial. There is no need for government to oversee it. The notion that you could simply have the economy detach itself from the state is not that implausible, particularly once you've got the internet in play. And the way that you do it is the defense contractors cut a deal with the military. We'll keep providing you with all the weapons and stuff that you need, but, you know, kind of, sort of, we've had enough of those bozos in Washington. On that thread, basically, now it's possible to do something like that, as you mentioned, get a thousand top corporations and having their own payment systems, a couple of decades ago or you know a century ago it wasn't probably possible right so can you tell us what are the kind of innovations that enabled the rise of cryptocurrencies and bitcoin yeah what enabled basically um what enabled it was libertarians wanting to test their theory right mm -hmm. and see if it works mm -hmm. close enough you know they gave it a try they circulated it inside and again what makes it grow people choosing to accept it right so, you know, the answer to all of your questions is the individual decides that they will accept it, therefore it grows. Why do individuals make that decision? Libertarians made that decision for ideological reasons, and then it goes out from there. But are there any technological innovations that enabled the implementation of this kind of political will from the libertarians? Sure. I mean, that's the invention of Bitcoin in a nutshell, was it was the technological implementation that gave the libertarians a currency. It wasn't the first though, right? You've got like Zcash and Bitgold and others that were trying to do something similar native to the internet. So what happens here is three things come together, right? You get proof of work, you get distributed hash tables and digital signatures, right? So digital signatures plus proof of work plus distributed hash tables equals Bitcoin. People had put together bits of those systems before, but the distributed hash table is kind of the unsung hero of the crypto space until the DHT was invented, which was pretty early, right? The DHT was the thing that gave us things like Napster and Kazaa. Until the DHT was invented, we didn't have an easy and convenient way of organizing large numbers of computers operating as if they were a single computer. Once we had that capability, a whole bunch of other stuff gets unlocked. 
unlocked. Now we can coordinate the network of computers as if they're a single computer. Great. What are we going to have that computer do? Well, let's do this thing called mining. What does the mining do? Well, that's proof of work. That's hash cash was the original name for that, if I remember correctly. Once you've got the hash cash system up and running, you sort of say, well, we've got digital signatures to tell people when the hash cache is going to be transferred. We've got this here DHT that ties all the computers together into a single state. And from there, the jump to Bitcoin is relatively small. The problem that previous systems had was rather than having the DHT to tie all the computers together into a single system, they'd wound up with things like masternodes. They'd wound up with a single computer, which is the thing that had the authoritative register, and that created a bunch of problems. You know, Bitcoin was basically a summation of pretty much everything that we knew about how to do this stuff com with computers up until the point where Bitcoin was written. There wasn't much cryptography lying around that Bitcoin didn't in some way utilize. It was a very, very impressive thing. You know, the only tragedy is they haven't substantially modernized it in 12 years, and that's really causing problems. Adam Pasco were quite interested in emerging markets and how the governments in emerging markets can think about and leverage this unique foundational technology for state building and development. We've already seen China launch its own digital currency, the digital renminbi. We've also seen the Indian and Turkish governments basically talk about potentially banning crypto. But the tech is so fundamental that by banning, you miss out on becoming the next innovation hub. We've already seen that with the state of New York regulations being so old school and stringent that a lot of crypto companies are going for places like Gibraltar to do their ICOs. That's the initial coin offerings. So we covered this topic with Vinay as well, but also equally we covered on how individuals living on those markets should be thinking about crypto as well. Here, we have to ask a really delicate thing, which is how concerned are we about the possibility that untraceable digital cash will make it impossible to tax people? This is often held up as being the great specter. You know, even Obama talked about this in 2016. He did a speech at South by Southwest, and he talked about how crypto was eventually going to make it hard for the US government to collect taxes and how this might be a bad, bad problem. Practically speaking, how concerned are we that it becomes possible for people to hide their income from the government and avoid paying taxes? Because although you might be able to hide your income from the government, it's very, very difficult to hide your spending. So if the government just put a big fat tax on physical property, so cars, boats, planes, helicopters, office buildings, and houses, if the government just puts a tax on those you know, six kinds of assets, and by the way, all those assets are very tightly monitored, registered, and controlled by the government already, the government already has an individual number for every single one of those things, then to all intents and purposes, you could just tax that stuff and you would have in effect taxed all the wealth that matters. Mm. So like a general purpose tax, something like that. You know, if I can't see people's income, but I can't see their houses, and I just tax people based on how big their house is, you might get a bit of a fashion for rich people living in tiny, tiny, tiny little apartments in the middle of nowhere and paying almost no taxes. But most rich people will stay exactly where they are right now, and they'll just pay whatever it costs to live there. So if we tax the big physical wealth items, if you are rich, cars, planes, houses, boats, right? Helicopters, if you're really rich, that's probably a very substantial chunk of your net worth. Because even if you're wearing very expensive fashion, the vast majority of people, the house they keep their expensive fashion in is going to be worth way more than the fashion which is in the house. You might wind up with collections of fine art. Oh, you've got $100 million worth of art. 
maybe the government figures out how to tax that stuff in exchange for some kind of insurance or fraud prevention or some other government function. You know, the police say, if you didn't pay tax on the art, if it's stolen, we won't investigate. Pretty soon people are going to pay tax on their art. Or, or you do it through insurance, right? You say to the insurance companies, the law is, if they didn't pay tax on it, you're not allowed to pay out anything if it's stolen. You could very, very, very quickly figure out clean mechanisms for taxing people, even if you can't see their incomes. I don't think cryptocurrency is any kind of substantial threat to the smooth functioning of the nation state, even in the poorest countries. All that it does is change the mechanisms you use from tax enforcement from chasing people's income to chasing people's assets. And the vast majority of those assets are already on state registers like real estate registers. So I don't think cryptocurrency is a threat to the tax man. And a lot of cryptocurrency people find that very disappointing. Oh, I thought we were just going to be able to hide all our money. You can hide your money. You can hide your money all you like, but you can't enjoy your money after you've hidden it. Oh, that's no fun. Yeah, that's that's right. The government will just tax you for having fun. They can't tax you for having the money, but they can tax you for spending it, and they'll get you in the end. Vinay, so just to get this clear, so what you're saying is it will be fairly easy to tax high-value items, so that's a layer of spending, and then the low-value items, you know, the shops, the restaurants, and so on, they simply won't be allowed to take these, you know, whether that's zero-knowledge, cryptocurrencies, something along those lines, so then that is also safe as well. My suggestion is the government doesn't really care. You know, I mean, if you're going to go out there and try and raise the same amount of money for the state in a position where you can't see people's financial transactions, you come up to a restaurant, you calculate the number of seats in the restaurant, and then you charge them a fee. We don't care how much money you're taking, but this is the seat tax. If you have a restaurant and it has 50 seats, you have to give us this much money every year. If you can't afford it, you go bankrupt. Your problem not ours. Okay, that's really interesting. So that basically suggests that we're going to move into an entirely new system of taxation. And that also ties in with the governance question then, right? My suggestion is there is no fundamental reason for the governments to fear cryptocurrency as a threat to their ability to tax people. The kinds of people that you wouldn't catch are people like Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett lives in the same house that he bought something like 50 years ago and apparently has dinner at McDonald's once every two weeks. Hey, that's Warren Buffett, right? There's only one Warren Buffett. Jeff Bezos was at Gates. Bezos, right, just commissioned a $500 million yacht. That's the thing you tax. Warren Buffett, okay, he lives like a monk. Fine, he's not going to pay much taxes. He's a weirdo. Okay, fine. Bezos had just commissioned a $500 million yacht. You are going to be able to tax that yacht. It's not a hard thing to find. Once we take away the idea that cryptocurrency will starve the governments of their ability to tax effectively, my suggestion is at that point, the governments have absolutely nothing to fear from cryptocurrency. It is largely irrelevant to the government because if it doesn't affect their ability to tax, what else is there? Oh, well, it affects their ability to enforce law. People will launder money through it. Most of the time you're concerned with money laundering because people are avoiding taxes. Thing one, we just cover taxes. The other thing is you're going to intercept people's financial arrangements as they're paying each other for doing illegal things, and then you're going to arrest them by following the money. I will admit, properly handled cryptocurrency makes that a bit harder. Absolutely agreed. However, the government has more or less total surveillance of everybody's lives all the time because they've got control of the internet in most countries. And at that point, if they can't figure out when people are engaging in a criminal conspiracy, I don't think having access to their banking records is really going to help them that much. So proactively designing a new taxation policy, for example, if I'm a statesman in Bangladesh. So what else? What else do you think? I don't think they have to proactively design it. I think they just have to accept that it's not a threat to them. If it ever begins to cause problems, they can change how they tax. They don't have to change how they're taxing until it's big enough to start causing problems. 
you know, okay, this is causing problems. We need to reform how we tax. Okay, fine, right? Once we say this is not a threat to the government's ability to govern because taxation can shift and they'll be able to collect the same amount of taxes, probably in a more fair way. And on the other side, on the criminal conspiracy side, in all probability, they've got much better ways of getting the information than the banking system anyway. Then we can say, so given that we've agreed you don't have to be afraid of this stuff, what can you do with it? Yeah. Suddenly we're in a whole new domain. Because, you know, everybody acts as if cryptocurrency is a scary thing that governments are meant to be afraid of because this was the sort of public relations nonsense that went along with the early adoption of Bitcoin. Bitcoiners got into Bitcoin largely because they wanted to be able to pay WikiLeaks after WikiLeaks was kicked out of the visa system. And, you know, Bitcoin was a way of funding Julian Assange's insurgency. And it was a very effective way of funding Julian Assange's work. And you can see that the state found another way of cutting Assange off from air. You know, not very nice people, the state, at least not for Julian Assange. So once we get over the idea that there's anything to be afraid of in these technologies, then we say, well, what are they good for for a government? And if you're a small government in a developing world country, probably the biggest single problem that you have is structural corruption. So, you know, hey, we've got a payment system that leaves a perfect record of everywhere the money has gone. Hey, all government spending is going to go over the government's own blockchain. The way that it works is the next time you come in for your driver's license, you can optionally bring in your crypto wallet. The government will verify the address on your crypto wallet is correct by making a very small payment, or even better, you make a small payment to them. And then the government will register your crypto wallet address as being this is your crypto wallet address. And now the government can make payments to you directly to your crypto wallet rather than going through the crappy old banking system or trying to give you cash. How much easier did life just get in terms of distributing funds to the poor? Super simple, right? It's just not as hard as people make it out to be. So corruption, taxation, what else do you think, say, you think about leveraging blockchain or crypto? Let's go to this question of like, what are the real problems that states have? Corruption is a multi, multi-tiered beast. It's not just about following the money. It's about following the things which are meant to be done for the money. I mean, you know, the kind of classical sort of developing world scam where, you know, somebody bills the government $100 million for building a highway and then they build, you know, 15 kilometers at either end close to the big cities and then the rest of it is just a muddy washed out road two years <laughs> after it was built. Yep. You've seen this scam. You know, that scam, if you can track where the money went, you know, you can see the payment that went to the contracting company didn't go to the sand and gravel company, and it didn't go to the tarmac company, and it didn't go to the mechanical digger company. It went to the yacht company, and it went to Prada. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Hey, I have a problem here, right? So imagine that the government has a roster of people that are permitted to receive government money. And the roster of people that are allowed to receive government money, that doesn't include Prada and the yacht guy. So it does include all of the people who are doing wage labor in the gravel pits, and it includes all of the people in the tarmac company, and it includes the mechanical digger firm. So we give you $100 million to go build this road. You have to get all the people you want to give that money to registered in our system, or it will become impossible to transfer the money to them. Can you imagine how different the developing world would look if this system was in place already? Can you imagine how different the world would be if you were just in a situation where it was impossible to steal money from the people of the third world, third world, developing world, God, I'm really showing my age here, right? Poor countries, let's say what we really mean. So if it becomes impossible to steal from the people of poor countries, because the only way that money is moved around on government contracts is to a series of people that are already authorized, and if you're not authorized, the money physically can't enter your account, and we've got a perfect audit trail left of every penny in the systems, how much 
much better off are the poor going to be in poor countries? Yeah, and this authorization logic can be designed on the chain, basically, versus your current financial system. Well, I mean, you know, you have the government providing a payment rail, and the government will only pay people that it's authorized to receive payments of that kind. Right. So you are Bob's gravel company and you say, I've got a contract here to deliver 500 metric tons of gravel for this road project. I need you to put mm -hmm. me into the system as an authorized vendor. They verify that you actually exist. They verify you pay your taxes. They verify you have a bunch of employees. They put you and all of your employees in the government system. Right Now, when the money moves, the government can track it penny by penny right through every one of your employees, right through, hey, they're doing a lot of overtime. Shouldn't you hire some more people? And you say, but isn't this massive government intrusion? Yes, weirdly enough, it is massive government intrusion, but it's government intrusion on work that the government are paying for. Yeah, yeah. I guess we got to think about disciplined government versus small government. You know, sometimes it coincides, sometimes it doesn't, but disciplined government is what you're trying to get to, right? That's right. It's a tool for the governments to be able to control what happens to the money that they spend. That makes sense. And since you talked about poor countries and poverty-related initiatives, I know the charity space, it's quite prone to these kind of, you don't know where your money goes when you basically mm -hmm. pay $100, right? So can you speak about how blockchain is currently used in the charity space and what's the problem and how can it help? I think it's also worth prefacing that this is actually what Vinay does at Materium and this notion of organizing the physical world that is capable of solving so many global problems, whether that's you know, the corruption that's happening in governments or the charity world, but also beyond that, just problems related to sustainability. And maybe we can dig into that a little bit as well. Sure. In terms of how you would use blockchain in the charity space, just use it to give money directly to poor people. Get rid of the charities completely. If you could get an identity register of who are the poor people that have crypto wallets, and you can make sure that this wallet belongs to a person that's inside of the demographic you want to donate money to, just give the money directly to the poor people. Why would you do it any other way? What possible reason could there be to have this vast aid bureaucracy in the middle? Have you ever been to Geneva? I have not, no. Yeah, I have. Arthur, when you were in Geneva, how rich does Geneva look as a city? It's beautiful. And standard of living there, would you say it's closer to New York than New Jersey? I haven't been to either of those. Oh, I see. Well, there you go. Let me tell you, right? Geneva is like the most expensive parts of New York, and the whole city is that way. It's a phenomenally expensive place to live, and an enormous amount of the Geneva economy is the money that's pouring in from all the aid bureaucracies that are HQ'd in Geneva, and have a whole bunch of staff that are paid $115,000 a year tax-free. The international system is rotten to the core and you know like you want to ask what blockchain would do you figure out who the poor people are that have blockchain wallets and then you give money to them directly and then you can account for every penny because you can see how the money is spent afterwards mm -hmm. okay makes sense Vinay, does this sort of tie into the idea of uh, ubi it ties very closely to the idea of ubi so universal basic income over the blockchain i think is one of the world's just best ideas because the problem with ubi is everybody's afraid that if you start giving people basic income what will happen is the landlords will jack up the rents and then all that you'll be doing is paying a direct subsidy to the landlord and the people providing broadband and you know similar so if you've got a basic income that runs across a blockchain, you could follow the money exactly to figure out whether or not that's happening. And if you do see it happening, the evidence will be on-chain and completely incontrovertible. And that is a game changer because the ability to do UBI with ultra-close monitoring of what's happening means that if you begin to see companies hoovering up the UBI in this kind of monopolistic way, you have the opportunity to go in and stop that almost as soon as it starts. A completely different way of doing this thing is possible than just handing people cash. Because if you hand them cash, 
without the ability to monitor where the cash winds up. The possibility is always going to be that there's just a gigantic cash hoover run by the established monopolies that just come in and steal everything. And the following question from all of this is, if you are a person living in those, let's say, poor countries, right? What steps can you undertake today rather than like, you know, wait for the government to, you know, adjust its policies or wait for something like UBI to happen? What can you start doing today? For folks who are living in poor countries, literally the starting point is to start learning about these technologies and figure out how to use them. Right now, most of these technologies are very, very broken because of the enormously rapid growth that's happened in the last year. We haven't really caught the technology up. So right now it's costing more money to do an Ethereum transaction than most folks in poor countries are earning in a year. The systems are just destroyed by rapid growth. A lot of work is going into getting scaling solutions so that they will begin to operate efficiently again and it'll be cheap to make payments like it ought to be. And at that point, these things will begin to stand up again. There are a bunch of blockchain systems which are still relatively cheap because they used proof of stake rather than proof of work. You know, I don't know what I would recommend of those, maybe Avalanche. Getting to know the lingo, reading about them, understanding their technologies, getting wallets set up you know, on the blockchains, which are currently not broken by growth. All of this stuff is sensible early practice. It's particularly true in countries where the economies are unstable. So, you know, there are all these stories about people who were basically feeding their families by Bitcoin mining in Venezuela. You know, people who are in economies that have a risk of hyperinflation, storing some wealth in the form of crypto assets is not a bad plan. It's also not necessarily a good plan because those assets are inherently very, very volatile. But there are currencies like USDC, which is a dollar denominated coin, which is backed one to one by US dollars. So if you were in a place like Venezuela, as well when you bought bitcoin you'd be very rich one day and very poor the next you know if people buy bitcoin at the current valuation of whatever it is fifty five thousand dollars that's probably going to go down a long way before it hits 100 grand i don't know that for sure but it's a reasonable guess based on previous experience whereas if you bought something like usdc or you bought a gold product you would have gotten your wealth outside of the national economy outside of the zone of control of the government without having to do anything particularly difficult or scary on the way and is that fair to say that, you know, a lot of this blockchain tech essentially is creating a global economy rather than many different local economies? So that individual who starts participating in uh, Aave or staking, you know, their tokens in one of these protocols, you name it, buys USDC or DAI stable coins and is now... Mm -hmm part of this global financial system. It is certainly true you're part of a global financial system in that you can pay anybody in the world who has a wallet. And that is an incredibly powerful starting point. But it's only a starting point because paying them is only one half of the equation. The other half of the equation is that they need to be able to send you something of value in return. So although we have the beginnings of a genuinely global system where you can have any person pay any other person, payments is only one half of the equation. The other half of the equation has to be moving goods and services. And this is the problem that I'm working on. I'm working on how we get goods and services onto the blockchain in a way that complements the existing payments infrastructure. Right. And maybe we could dig into that a little bit here. What my company Materium does is we provide a standard format for documenting valuable things. And a valuable thing, you know, it could be a house, it could be a car, it could be a diamond. The way that we document these assets is we don't just write down what they are. We write down what they are with an or else clause. I tell you that this is a one kilogram gold bar produced by Valcambi with the following serial number. And if that is not true, I will pay you um, $75,000. Right. Now, at that point, if I'm the buyer of the bar 
and I trust that there is a reasonable probability that this person will pay me if the bar is fake, I can buy the bar with total safety, even if the bar is on the other side of the world. And that system is not theoretical. We brought that system up to speed literally today. I think we got that thing started. Might have been yesterday. Now that that's online, there are NFTs that you can buy, which directly correspond to the legal right to pick up a gold bar in Singapore or to have them sell the bar on your behalf and send you the money. And that is a game changer. You know, that is not a thing which has existed before. Right. And I think it's worth mentioning that that same concept you can then take and apply to all kinds of other physical assets. Any physical thing or indeed some non-physical things. So if you want to do something like intellectual property licensing, we can do that for an IP license. We can do it for a patent license. Because if that process of documenting what it is that makes something valuable applies to any asset of value. It's not just about the assets which are physical, as long as there is something like an IP license that you, we can document you, you've got the right to sell the license, at that point we can do it. And that is a game changer, let me tell you. Right. So essentially anything that can be tokenized will be tokenized and anything that has value will be able to be transacted or you know used in the financial system much more fluidly than it is today. Absolutely. Right. Much, much more fluidly is the key. If you take something like real estate, I don't foresee a world in which 98% of the world's real estate is inside of a blockchain system anytime in the next 20 years. I think it will take a really long time to get to, you know, the vast majority of the world's real estate being in those systems because most of the world's real estate doesn't need to be very fluid. There's not that much of a need for having most real estate be in this kind of hyper liquid form. But in any country, in any jurisdiction, you do need some real estate to be in this hyperliquid form. Otherwise, when something goes wrong in an old-style real estate deal, you've got no options to quickly switch in another piece of real estate instead and then complete the transactions planned. And that is a really important capability. That is a game changer. So imagine that you're trying to buy a house in some place like New York, right? You know, the transaction goes wrong. Right now, you cannot get another piece of property into that transaction in less than three weeks or a month or five months if it's in the UK. You know, suddenly, deal's gone bad. That house is no longer available. We found some terrible problem with it on the last structural engineering report. I got the mortgage lined up. I've got a buyer for my existing house. I need a place tomorrow. Well, you know, you take your three quarters of a million dollar mortgage, you turn it into USDC, you put it into a smart contract, and you click on the house that you want. Boom. You are now the owner of a brand spanking new property. And that notion that you'd have a reserve pool of properties that were ready to change hands very quickly. If I buy a house and I'm having a hard time selling it, I put it into that reserve pool by paying the necessary cost of getting the thing turned into an NFT. And then I plug that NFT directly into that liquid market and I could live in the house right up until the moment it's sold. Can you imagine how different the world looks for people who are buying property if you know that you can always pay a couple of percent more on the deal for something that will settle in literally 15 minutes. So the thing which is really important for your kind of listeners to understand about this when all is said and done is this. Nothing about the world is fixed. The world is basically continuously in flux and technology is the part of the world that changes most rapidly right now. Wasn't always the case, but right now technology is changing very, very quickly. The blockchain is a process. 
it's not a single technology where you look at it and you go, now I understand it. It's a technology where you look at it and then six months later you look at it again and it's a completely different thing. So a lot of people will have looked at the blockchain space two years ago, the last time the numbers were big, and just been like, I don't get that. That looks kind of scammy. Is it really good for anything? I'm not sure any of that works. And they'll go, hmm, well, you know, that's the blockchain. For the people who look at it today, what they see is tens of thousands of engineers building a parallel to the financial system that runs with zero paperwork. And this notion of like, oh, they've got a zero paperwork financial system. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it can work with dollars and it can work with Bitcoin and it can work with Ethereum and it's got smart contracts and there are 500 different platforms and all do different things. It's a completely different situation than it was the last time we saw this thing come around. Two years from now, you'll look at the blockchain space and it will be another completely different situation because it's a process, not a product. You know, all I can say to people is if it is not at the point right now where you look at that process and say the thing that it's produced is ready for you to use and it's it's not, you know, it doesn't solve your problem yet. Don't write it off. Look at it in six months and look at it every six months because at some point you're going to turn around and just be like, wait, you could do that now? And suddenly it will have meaning for you and it will be useful for you and it might change your world. Yeah. So directionally, it's going there. It's the fastest moving technology that's ever existed because the way that the funding works in the space with the ICOs and so on is it just transfers lots of wealth very quickly into the hands of engineers that then use it to build more stuff. And that cutting out of the middlemen in terms of the funding loops for small companies has hugely accelerated the pace of technological development in the blockchain space. You don't see it too much because the incumbents are very slow. Bitcoin, the engineering is really slow. Ethereum, the engineering is a bit less slow than Bitcoin, but by no means fast. But you look at the kind of third generation chains like Avalanche and the layer uh, Algorand, you look at the layer two scaling solutions engineering, there's a lot of extremely clever stuff getting built very, very, very quickly. And then some of that stuff gets way stream adoption and others of that stuff doesn't. So it's a really, really rapidly moving field. And that's it. You know, you just have to keep an eye on it because six months from now, it will be unrecognizable one more time. Absolutely. <laughs> Great advice, Vinay. Thanks a lot. Cool. I guess we'll leave it at that then. Vinay, thanks a lot for being on the podcast and sharing your thoughts and all the best with your future work. Splendid. Really enjoy talking, guys. Thank you, Vinay. If you liked the episode, please subscribe to the Innovation Civilization podcast on your podcasting platform of choice. We're available on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts as well. If you love the episode and would love to share the learnings, please feel free to share with your family, with your friends and with your colleagues as well.